Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, is back on the program to provide his thoughts and insights on the markets. Urian discusses many topics, including the debt ceiling, the odds of a recession this year, and what the earnings season is telling us so far in 2023. Urian also comments on the global markets overall and its recent movement. He compares it to when the market bottomed in 2020 after the COVID pandemic hit, but then went up, which at the time didn't make sense. He explains if we are repeating the same pattern and if the market is getting ahead of itself this time around. Stay tuned for this and more. Also per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on January 23, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fun investments. Just, I think we need a reminder. Why is it so difficult to time the markets? Um, because price and earnings do not always move in tandem. So over the very, very, very long term, price follows earnings. That's the mantra of every equity PM we have here in the building in Boston uh, and in Toronto. Um, but over the span of an individual cycle price, the market is always anticipating, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. And so, you know, remember a couple of years ago in 2020, after the COVID bottom, market made no sense. Why was it going to new highs while the world was falling apart? Uh, in retrospect, it all kind of made sense in its own screwed up way. But at the time, oftentimes the market doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, this is kind of one of those times, I think. I mean, it's it's very interesting what uh, the market keeps getting ahead of itself and and we'll we'll go further afield and further abroad in a minute. But just taking a look at sort of the North American situation now, I mean, it's hard to see anything other than a soft landing being priced in ultimately. The yield curve, you know, it doesn't lie. It's 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 not a great indicator because it's there's so much dispersion in how long it takes for an inverted yield curve to lead to a recession, but inevitably it does, and the yield curve is the most inverted since the early 1980s. And we also know that the Fed is uh, planning on taking rates far enough into the restrictive zone that in the past that has generated recessions as well. And of course, those two things are, are you know, have a lot in common because that's how interest rates are, are juxtaposed right now. So we know from the data that a recession is likely at some point in the US, but then it's the, the challenge of, okay, how much of that is already priced in, right? The market fell 28% last year, 31% in PE terms. And so, even though we can explain all of that by rising rates, and we've done that uh, at great length uh, in these shows, um, it doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of bad news was priced in. And then on top of that, we have a desynchronized you know, global cycle now where 
while the US and other countries, including Canada, of course, and in Europe, you know, reopened a long time ago following the, the COVID lockdowns, China has been basically remained in lockdown with its zero COVID policy until now. So now China is reopening, it's the second largest economy. And so what does that do in terms of creating cross currents against what otherwise would be uh, you know, a pretty negative outlook from, from the yield curve and, for, and by extension for earnings. So there, there are a lot of balls in the air and, um, and I think the market is trying to find itself here. But as you point out, uh, a soft landing seems to be priced in here, right? If we take the earnings estimates at face value, they'll flattish for 2023 followed by 10% growth in 24. Uh, and we plot, we put that into a DCF model. Um, and we look at the forward curve, which has the Fed going from 5% early this year to 3% next year sometime. And we price that in, we get to a PE ratio of around 17, which guess what? We're trading at already. So a soft landing seems to be completely priced in here. Um, doesn't mean that soft landing is not going to happen, but a lot needs to go right for the market to be correctly priced here. And that, I think, is the challenge right now. What, what is the story of earnings thus far? I mean, you, you just mentioned sort of taking a look at the estimates themselves, what, what you're seeing roll out in terms of all the different ways you might measure the, the data, yeah. what's being said. What, what is the story thus far? So let's pull up slide four. The next few slides Urian is referring to are titled Earnings Estimate Progression, both tweeted on January 25th. So earnings season, as you point out, is now underway. 57 companies have reported, 68% have beaten by an average of four percentage points. So that sounds fairly normal. But you look at kind of, you can almost see this as incoming waves, right? Uh, like a, you know, rolling down the ocean. So the purple line, is the consensus growth estimate for the fourth quarter. It's now at minus 3%. Usually these lines come down going into the vertical line, which is the start of the quarter, um, and then they have a bounce. So this number will likely come up somewhat. But you look at the pink line, which is Q1, the orange line, Q2, they're all kind of in, in, in red now, and, and usually the progression goes down from there. And then if we uh, go from the quarterly to the next slide, which is, shows the calendar year, you can see that for uh, 2022, the black line, uh, we're gonna have around 8% growth. Uh, so we'll know that for sure after this quarter is, has been reported. 0.9% uh, X energy, um, obviously earnings wise, 2022 was a big energy story. And then we look at the other black line, the thicker line, that's the 23 estimate, that's for the entire index down to 0.9, from 9.4 just a few months ago and falling. So it looks very likely that 2023 will be a negative earnings year. But then you look at the pink line on the left hand of the slide there, 10.5% expected for 2024, and that line is rising. So right. you know the market is looking for a mild uh, contraction, but followed fairly quickly by a robust recovery. And that may very well happen uh, because the recession, if it comes, could be short, could be mild, and a U.S. economic recession could be offset to some degree by the China reopening. And while that may not translate into better GDP numbers in the U.S., it would translate to better earnings numbers because we know that the S&P 500 is a global index uh, and that 40% of its revenues come from overseas. So this, this is kind of where the nuances come in of soft versus hard landing, et cetera. 
Can I can I just sort of pull out of that the energy story, which you mentioned so much of last year was obviously consumed with that. I mean, the price of oil has has risen. Um, what if it just goes up? What does that do to the earnings picture? What does that do to the story for energy for 2023? Uh, so the energy sector is pretty small. It's 4%. Uh, it's a far cry from where it was in the early 80s when I think energy was, I think it was 27% of the S&P. Imagine that. So, so tech has replaced We can energy. imagine that in Canada. Yeah. We can yes, imagine that's true. Yeah. true. Um, so earnings for the energy sector grew, I think, 85% last year. Um, and everything else was either negative or just mildly, mildly positive. So that was an outsized gain that kind of lifted uh, uh, the overall market, even though the, the, the size of the sector is pretty small. Uh, that's not likely to repeat itself just because of, of comparables, you know, uh, base effects, et cetera. So I, I think the energy sector remains very attractive. It's very cheap. And I think uh, we are going to have, you know, structural kind of supply shortages going on. Um, but on a rate of change basis, I don't think we're going to beat kind of what we saw last year in terms of almost a doubling of earnings. And so that's why when you look at the estimates for 23, either index level or X energy, uh, there really isn't much of a, of a change anymore uh, on that front. But, you know, but materials, energy, industrials, those are all kind of cyclical commodity sensitive sectors that should get boosted by a, a big China reopening. As, as should European uh, earnings, which are certainly folding that into the story where we're seeing yes. the rally there today. It's sort of unbelievable. It continued. We talked about it last week as well. But uh, what are you seeing there in terms of sustainable rally? Uh, in Europe, you know, there's the benefit of what looks like a mild winter, right? I mean, it's uh, good luck finding ski slopes with snow on them in Europe. Um, so that that's obviously a, a much needed break uh, for the Europeans. And um, and I kind of liken it to almost like Japan, you know, like I, I was in Europe twice last fall, September and again in November. And, you know, I, I didn't see any empty seats on planes and the hotels were, were full, people on the streets, hustle and bustle, uh, even though the economy was probably in recession or at least it wasn't growing. And it reminds me very much of when I go to Japan in Tokyo. It's the same thing, right? There the population is shrinking. There really is no growth in the economy, but it's still operating at a very high level. And so even if it's not growing, if it's operating at a high level, you don't really notice that the economy is not growing. And I think Europe kind of has that feeling, uh, had that feeling for, for me as well. Um, and so it's, it's a nuance that uh, if you're running at kind of full capacity, you don't really need to be growing 10% at the same time either, right? So you're just a mature economy that is functioning. Um, and so, and that's my sense for Europe and Japan. EM is the cyclical delta. That's where you see the bigger moves. Uh, and all of those regions are cheap compared to the U.S., of course. The U.S. is at 17 and a half times expected earnings. Europe, Japan, EM are all at around 11, 12. Does India provide um, real growth prospects for sort of the global GDP story? Um, it does, because India's demographics are now getting, becoming vastly superior to China's, right? So China's econ uh, its population is starting to shrink. And India, of course, still has a very robust birth rate. So um, India just has its challenges with a very sloppy democracy. Um, and, uh, you know, the Chinese kind of did it a different way. They did it with this command economy, this kind of combination of communism and capitalism 
um, and uh, India has done it sort of the messy way, uh, but ultimately, at least demographically, uh, that that remains you know a very a very promising place. Um, there's no way we're going to have this conversation without talking about the debt ceiling. That is just part of the discussion. I know I asked you about it last week, but uh, it does seem to get pretty heated up even in the last week. What is different this time? So I think what's different this time is we have a very interesting, uh, uh, to put it mildly, composition in the House of Representatives uh, within the Republican Party. I mean, we, we saw how long it took uh, Kevin McCarthy to get elected as the speaker. I think it took 14 tries. And so this Congress, or at least this wing of the Republican Party, um, I, I don't think they're going to be um, uh, worried too much about what kind of uh, chaos they're going to create in terms of a debt ceiling showdown. But, you know, we've had this conversation in the past. The debt ceiling inevitably comes up every uh, few years or so. It happened in 2021. Twice and it was resolved pretty easily. Uh, probably the more contentious one that we can think of was 2011. That was the summer where the U.S. debt got downgraded, um, and the market actually fell 20% then. But I think that had more to do with the eurozone debt crisis, which was in full full bloom at that point, than 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 uh, any debt downgrade. But you know, this is a year where. Uh, if it's ever going to get very theatrical, uh, it's probably going to be this year, just because of the way the political power, uh, you know, um, uh, lines are drawn. But historically, uh, the debt ceiling showdown has been more theatrics than substance. And, and, and the way I think of it is that it gives politicians a, an easy way to grandstand and score points knowing that there actually isn't going to be a price to be paid because everyone knows that ultimately the debt ceiling needs to get raised uh, because the economy can't, uh, the government can't function otherwise. And so it's going to happen sooner or later. The question is what kind of collateral damage will be taken, uh, what will happen before it gets resolved? Will there be a technical default, right? So where the Treasury is already in the extraordinary measure stage, uh, where it has to kind of reshuffle the deck chairs to make sure the bills get paid. Um, and, and that will last until June or so. And then you get really into the showdown. And the risk, of course, is that when they start prioritizing payments, they will always prioritize uh, debt coupon payments, of course. But it could theoretically be possible that a coupon payment is missed. And then, of course, the government goes into a technical default. Um, and, and so the question then is what happens? What happens to the plumbing of the Treasury bill market? Um, but ultimately, this is the U.S. Uh, it's the reserve currency. Um, if there's a technical default, that doesn't mean it's going to lead to a permanent default. We're not Argentina. Um, and so I, I think ultimately, as much volatility as might get stoked with a really contentious showdown, um, I think of it almost as like Brexit back in 20. 16? Was it 2016 already? I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, no. Anyway, anyway but, um, but it created volatility, which in retrospect was just an opportunity to buy. Uh, right. and, and I don't want to be that that dismissive about it, but volatility, you know, can be your enemy, but it can also be your friend. And so I think the market has a pretty good track record of looking through this stuff because ultimately it's kind of like mutually assured destruction. There is no alternative other than to raise the debt limit. Everyone knows it. It's just a question of how much drama there's going to be and whether there is collateral damage uh, along the way in terms of a missed payment. But 
That payment will then be made once the debt ceiling has been raised again. And so uh, I, I think the market is, is you know, will look through it, um, but it will certainly capture the headlines for a while. When you look at all the different pieces of inflation, which you kind of mentioned off the top, but I just wanted to cycle back to them. I, I know you have a slide on liquidity overall. Maybe we can we can, if you want to, take a look at that. But just the the story on extraordinary measures being taken out of the market, um, perhaps more opportunities because there's more clarity, but also the story on liquidity. Some are nervous. Yeah. So slide fourteen. The next slide he's referring to is overall liquidity tweeted on January 24th. It's a, it's a measure of liquidity. And as you can see, once the chart comes up, uh, there's a very strong correlation between the S&P 500 and this measure of liquidity. And this measure of liquidity is basically the Fed's balance sheet minus the Treasury general account, which is the Treasury's cash balance at the Fed, right? Because remember, the Fed earns money through its balance sheet that then goes to, to the Treasury. And then we subtract reverse repos from that as well. And it gives you a sense of net liquidity. And the story, of course, has been since the peak in early 2022, liquidity has, that, that tide has gone back out to sea, which we know why, of course, because the Fed has been tightening policy, doing quantitative tightening since March of last year. And so that reduces the overall liquidity and lo and behold, the market goes right with that. But since October, when that liquidity measure made a low, it's been more stable. And what's happened is that even though the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, that tightening is being offset by market-based liquidity coming in through reverse repos, through the, the Treasury using its cash at the Fed, uh, through reserves in the banking system. So in a way, the Fed's efforts are being uh, offset by market forces. Um, and, and that's kind of holding the market up. So I, I think that as we go into this debt ceiling showdown and, you know, and what happens to the issuance of treasury bills, et cetera, this line is more likely to go down than up in the coming months. And that leaves me more cautious on the market. Uh, you know, of course, while saying that the market's up 1% this morning, but, uh, but, but that's the overall liquidity dynamics. And it just goes to show that as much as we focus on earnings and interest rates, the liquidity dynamics are really, really important uh, for the markets. Uh, in a way, the market's kind of addicted to liquidity uh, more so than it has in the past. And maybe that's just a feature of the, the QE era since the financial crisis. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a twenty year old uh, discussion and, and sort of uh, reality within within the markets. Um, lots of questions rolling in, as as I'm sure you would imagine. So the U.S. dollar was starting to track lower for for some time, but now the question of sort of where the U.S. dollar goes from here, what what ultimately does it mean on the international front, is the question coming in. Yeah, so the dollar has put in you know, a pretty decisive peak as we get closer to the end of the Fed cycle. And again, the Fed's at four and three eight, so it still has a couple of big rate hikes uh, you know, left to do, as does the ECB, of course. So the terminal rate right now is, uh, or the expected terminal rate where the Fed would end uh, the tightening cycle is around 4.9. So the Fed's got about a half a point more to go. Uh, but the light is at the end of the tunnel. You, we can start to see it. Uh, and of course, the market is expecting the Fed to pivot very, very quickly and go all the way back to below 3%, right? And so that those interest rate differentials are, of course, uh, used to price uh, currencies. 
which are basically the net sum of interest rate differentials. And then at the same time, we have uh, we have China, you know, really reopening in a big way. Uh, and I think the Chinese government has kind of, you know, made a decision that the lockdowns are not going to work anymore just because uh, the population is, you know, is going to protest. And so let's give them some growth instead. And so I think the the, the government is is kind of all in on that. And I think that means that you're going to see this global reflation. You're going to see more currency, more FX reserves floating around the world. And that generally means that the dollar goes down. And so that creates the risk appetites, the animal spirits. It's good for commodities. It's good for non-U.S. equities. And, you know, against the juxtapo you know, juxtaposed against where we are on the earnings cycle. And um, uh, let's see if I have the chart here. If we go to slide seven. The next sequence of slides begins with global earnings growth tweeted on January 25th, followed by earnings estimates and then emerging markets, both tweeted on January 26th. You know, this is like perfect timing because uh, the earnings cycle in the U.S. is clearly rolling over, right? We had 50% earnings growth in 2021, about, you know, low single digits uh, in 2022, probably negative in 2023. This chart shows the year-over-year -year growth rate in forward estimates around the world. And that red line is EM. So that's been the weakest player all along because China remained in lockdown for so long. And now that level, now that number is kind of stabilizing a little bit while the black line, which is the US, is still coming down. So in a way you're getting a convergence of earnings growth between the US and emerging markets driven by China. And if we pull up slide 18, you can see that in more detail. Uh, this is one of my squiggles charts where I show the progression of earnings estimates, and there's a lot going on in this chart. But if you look at the, the, the bottom panel, that's the progression of earnings estimates for EM relative to the US. And you see at the bottom right-hand side of that chart that those numbers are now starting to come up. You see that in the inset as well, the gray lines there in the middle. So the, the relative earnings are starting to improve. And if it's one thing we know is that relative performance between countries and regions is driven not so much by relative valuation, which can become a value trap, but by relative earnings. And if the relative earnings tide is now turning, uh, that, that bodes well for EM and Chinese stocks. And if we go to the next slide, uh, we can see here uh, in the bottom panel, the, the purple line, is the what we call the credit impulse in China. So the change in credit as a percentage of GDP. And you can see that it follows a very consistent two-year cycle. Uh, and that cycle bottomed in 2021. Uh, it's kind of come off a little bit in recent months, but it's only halfway through kind of the trough and the peak. And the orange line is relative earnings growth between EM and the US lagged by two quarters. And so that purple line going from the bottom to the middle, presumably to the top, now that China is really reopening, suggests to me that relative earnings are going to do a lot better versus the U.S. Um, than they have in the past. And that bodes well for, for international stocks in general, but emerging markets in particular. When there are such opportunities, for instance, I know they're very different asset classes, but such opportunities with equities, perhaps, you know, the world over, where do you fit in the discussion about where fixed income goes for this year? I think, you know, the big story for 2022 was, of course, the great uh, valuation reset, right? In 2021, we had 
sort of mini asset bubbles or not so many actually uh, with the Fed, you know, financially repressing rates all the way down near zero, real rates at minus two, um, and that boosted equity valuations. We went from a, you know, a 14 PE to a 30 PE, and then 2022 was the year when the Fed took that all away. It reset those valuations. Bonds went from 1% to 4.5. Equity PE went from 30 to 15. Um, and, you know, as painful as that was, especially given that there was no place to hide in the 60-40 spectrum, uh, the good news is that, you know, the valuation reset has now happened and we have a level playing field. You can buy bonds at a 3.5% nominal yield and a 1.5% real yield. Uh, and if we get a recession, that means that suggests that those yields will come down and you'll actually get a, a return. So for the customers, the clients buying, you know, GICs instead of bonds, that is certainly one consideration uh, to keep in mind. So I think bonds will do what they're supposed to do. Um, whether the correlation will return to the negative levels that we are used to before last year remains to be seen. That depends on inflation because inflation is the driver for that. But even if they are not as well correlated, the fact that you're getting actually a yield now, uh, which you didn't get two years ago, means that you know the cost of owning that diversifier actually, uh, you're actually now getting paid to own that diversifier rather than it costing you. So I think bonds are a much better place now, uh, and hopefully they will do their job as a diversifier if it turns out that we're not out of the woods yet on the equity side. Thank you for answering so many of our other questions and, and at least providing all these visuals so we can see sort of where we are in certain cycles. Yuri and Timur, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.